82-year-old gentleman who presented with an iron deficiency anemia, had a colonoscopy performed, which revealed a circumferential lesion in the right colon at the hepatic flexure. Patient was taken to the operating room and underwent a laparoscopic-assisted right hemicolectomy, which revealed a moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma extending to the subserosa, but not through the pericolic fat. One of 12 lymph nodes were positive. Can you talk a little bit more about the man, what his lifestyle and general health was like? Sure. He was a retired attorney, very active, not particularly athletic, but doing normal activities. He was married, traveled with his wife. He did have some pre-existing hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and also had some minimal lower extremity peripheral neuropathy related to spinal stenosis. And again, getting into this theme of what his attitude was towards information, was he bringing in a lot of information? Did his family come with him, or was he kind of leaving everything up to you? He came with his wife. He was not someone who came in with reams of paper you know, printed out from the internet, but was savvy and had done some reading and was aware of what the therapeutic options were. So, Dan, I'd like you to comment on this as the man presented and also how you might think this thing through if the nodes were negative. Sure. Certainly, I think one of the naive conclusions from some clinical trials is that all the elderly are equal to all the young people. It's very politically correct to say it. But the truth is that the group of elderly over 80 that enter clinical trials is a highly select group and not representative of most 80-year-olds. So that the largest number of patients ever entered into an adjuvant trial was into group 089. There were 120 people over the age of 80, and there were over 1,000 over the age of 70. It was the first study in 1988 to not have an upper age limit, an arbitrary upper age limit. So we published that data, and Dan Sargent wrote it up, and it said that the elderly fared no worse. But the truth is that these are the, quote, fit elderly. So I think if you sat down and said, give me the eligibility criteria for intergroup 089, and if this patient would have entered into that study, then you can use the toxicity data and the efficacy data, which were slightly worse in the elderly. There was a trend toward them doing worse in terms of disease-related and other morbidities as well as toxicity. It just was not a huge gap. So I would say that for this person, I would offer them adjuvant therapy, certainly. There are limited numbers of patients over 80 on the FLOX trial, so I don't think you can even come to a conclusion. You can say they did no worse, but when you're dealing with double-digit numbers of patients, again, highly selected patient population, I would probably consider this patient for fall FOX as a standard adjuvant therapy. I see no direct contraindication to it based on anything you told me about him. He sounds like he could have entered a trial. Could you talk a little bit more about the back problem and the neuropathy you had from it? He was fairly typical for a lot of the older patients that we see. He had chronic low back pain for many years, had undergone multiple epidural steroid injections, but had not undergone any surgical intervention, and had some minimal problems in terms of balance and not had any falls or anything like that, but definitely had some pre-existing neuropathy. Sensory motor deficit? Sensory. Sensory. What do we know about this kind of situation, Charlie, in terms of whether or not oxalic platin makes it worse or worse than... A patient without this? I think you have to be concerned about it. Certainly, oxaloplatin can affect not just pure sensory, but obviously proprioception as well. And you don't obviously want this guy having further difficulties with his gait. So I think it's a toss-up in terms of giving this guy full fox. For instance, if he had a positive Romberg at presentation, I might be concerned about whether to give him full fox. Dan, do you want to go back on your recommendation? No, I think you're exactly right. I think one of the things to do is assess the person neurologically and really get a daily ADL assessment as to are they having trouble with walking or any problems. If they are, 
then don't do it. Use your least toxic therapy. The alternative is you're not signing someone up to 12 cycles of Folfox and never talking to them. If they start developing any neuropathy, just delete it. That's the easiest thing to do. And be very cautious. Dan, if you were going to initiate therapy without oxaliplatin, what would you likely recommend? This is a person where the exact trial, for example, could be utilized, although here again, with capecitabine alone, I think that was a very positive trial showing that you could substitute capecitabine for the Mayo Clinic regimen, certainly. I think that which dose you use is going to be an issue, again, based on the fact that about 80% of the patients in the exact trial were non-U.S.-based patients. When you initiate fluoropyrimidine monotherapy, Right now, is it generally Cape Cytobine or are you using IV 5-FU also? I'm frankly a Roswell Park kind of guy. I've used it for so long. And when you know how to give the Roswell Park regimen, it's the least toxic, easiest regimen to give to people. If you don't get into the diarrheal situation, which you can by just talking to the patient. So I never use the Mayo Clinic regimen. I'm cautious about Cape Cytobine and transferring the positive exact data into the American population. I would probably just treat with the Roswell Park regimen because LV5-FU2 with the port and the pump was shown to be equivalent to the Mayo. The Mayo was shown to be equivalent to the Roswell Park regimen. So I see no reason to put a poured in and have a pump for 48 hours every two weeks when I could just do a simple two-hour outpatient treatment. If you were going to use capecitabine in this patient, what dose would you use? Here's where I have problems because I think when you're doing adjuvant treatment, you should at least start out adhering to the rule of the law. So I would start out with the dose that the exact trial used, and I'd be just extremely cautious. In fact, in Europe, what docs do is see their patients weekly on the first three or four weeks of capecitabine even though the selling point is that they're not tied to your office, that they in fact do, or at least have a nurse call them up on day seven and day 14. And my general recommendation to people that I start on Cape Cytobine is, in addition to keeping your diary, if you're ever in doubt whether you should take those pills, don't call. In other words, don't take the next dose. If you think you're getting mouth sores or hand-foot syndrome, missing a dose or delaying it until you talk to me is better than having a three-week delay because of a irreversible or semi-irreversible toxicity. And just to clarify, the exact trial did use a full package insert dose of 2,500 milligrams. That's right. I mean, why would you do that if you just presented these data showing they're not going to tolerate it? Because the efficacy data is based on that. And in the adjuvant setting, you're curing people. In advanced disease, frequently I'll tell my patients it's good enough for government work. That is, the difference in PFS between 6.8 months and 7.4 months may be real, but is it clinically relevant? Cure rates are real. Recurrences are real. And the data from the exact trial are based on the drugs the way they were given. Bill? I just had one comment. I mean, I've used Roswell Park for a long time, and that's always been my regimen. I've tried to be as careful as possible, but at least in our group, I've always found that occasionally, not rarely, but occasionally someone would slip by, get hospitalized, often sometimes really sick, occasionally maybe lost one, not very often there. But since Fall Fox, I can't think of a single patient that's ever been hospitalized on adjuvant chemotherapy. It's just so rare. It's just so hard to deliver Roswell perfectly where someone doesn't escape through. There are trade-offs. There are clearly trade-offs. I mean, with Roswell, I've rarely had the problem of having to take a port out because it got infected or some other such thing. So I think you could use LV5-FU2. You could use Roswell Park. I don't know of anyone wanting to Mayo anymore. And you could use Cape Cytobine with the caveats that we talked about. But in the adjuvant setting, I am a little bit more rigid about adhering to what the protocol did. I want to get your thoughts in terms of how you would think this through if the nodes were negative, but before we do, let's hear what happened to this patient. At that time, we had an extensive discussion, 
and the patient was extremely concerned about any worsening of his neuropathy, although he did not have any gross neurologic signs of gait imbalance or proprioception abnormalities. He was extremely concerned about any further worsening of that, felt that he was active and really did not want to risk becoming less active or having any long-term toxicity from that standpoint. We discussed the various single-agent fluoropyrimidine approaches, Roswell Park, the 48-hour infusion LV5FU, or capecitabine, and the patient elected to receive capecitabine. I just want to say this was actually in the summer of 2004, which was right after the exact trial had been published. And so he started, and I did start him on the full package insert. And just like Dan said, I tell all my patients, if you have any issue, just stop and then call. And he made it through the first cycle to about day number eight, developed grade two to grade three hand-foot syndrome. But again, we discussed about possibly switching back to intravenous 5-FU leucovorin, again, was opposed to that. And we ended up muddling through six months of capecitabine with uh, dose reduction and also with the fact that most cycles he only got to maybe day 10 or day 12 before he had to stop. But he did complete six months of therapy, and he's now a year and a half out and doing fine. Dan? So interestingly, there is the data from Tower, among others, to show that maybe 14 days is just too much for most people. It's duration, not dose. And Tower's dose is much higher for seven days on and seven days off. And Roche is sponsoring a trial of this more intermittent regimen, because if you look at the exact data, or even the original capecitabine data, more than 50% of every cycle of drug is either delayed or reduced. So there are multiple opportunities and need for dose reductions and delays. In the Tower regimen, it's all built in. In other words, before you get to day eight, you stop, and then you let it go down. It's like the Roswell for people who revert to the three-on-one-off Roswell modification, is that it's usually the week five that gets you. If you miscalculate on week five, then you're going to regret it probably. And Charlie, there's been interest also in breast cancer. Larry Norton at Memorial has been interested in the week on, week off Zolota. And as Dan mentioned, that's being looked at with colorectal cancer. What are your thoughts about that strategy? I think Tower's work with and without oxaloplatin, with capecitabine, doing the one week on, one week off, I think is encouraging. And his sort of capecitabine oxaloplatin regimen week on, just for a week, does look quite encouraging. The caveat being that, once again, that is a European population. And I think that Dan's data, looking at the toxicity of capecitabine on both sides of the Atlantic, are very compelling. I was going to ask Steve whether this guy was on full guard or folic acid supplementation by his cardiologist because there's... He was not. We actually discussed that. and I mean, he did take a daily multivitamin, which obviously has a minimal amount of folic acid in it. But aside from that, he was not on any additional supplementation. Do you advise people not to take folate or even an MVI with folate? I tell them to delete folate from their supplements. I do as well. And frankly, although it's not a lot of folic acid and multivitamin, it's 400 micrograms. And that may be what is largely driving the difference between Europeans and Americans, just that amount. We're going to be looking at the data from the Zaloxa trial. And we have a fair number of plasma samples. And we're going to look at homocysteine levels, which is the inverse of folate, to see whether or not in the 20% of U.S. patients compared to the 80% of the ROW, there is a detectable difference in homocysteine levels to correlate with. It may not be the only explanation for, but correlate with this increased myelosuppression. It was across-the-board toxicity. It just wasn't a single toxicity parameter. Just to pick up back on this man, Charlie, Same situation, 12 nodes removed, except instead of having one positive, it's negative. 
Sure. As we all know, the number of negative nodes is definitely related to the outcome in stage 2 colon cancer. The more negative, the better. And the threshold of where to draw the line about where we consider somebody at, quote, high risk by virtue of an inadequate number of nodes is a bit of a moving target, and rightly so, because it's probably a continuous effect. There probably isn't a number that you should firmly say, well, the American College of Pathologists is doing 13. I think NCCN is somewhere in the 11 to 12 range, and this patient with 12 nodes is somewhere in that vicinity. For somebody who's certainly 10 or less, I feel that's high risk, and I would err on the side of treating somebody with stage 2 disease if they have 10 or fewer nodes. For 12, I think it's on the cusp. I would talk to the patient about that, and if it's somebody who really is interested in adjuvant therapy, I would certainly push to do it. And if you were going to use adjuvant therapy, still oxaliplatin, or would you think a little bit less about that? My default in stage 2 is Roswell Park 5-FU Lugavorin, and I certainly use Folfox in stage 2, but I think it has to be somebody where I see more of a risk. Now, I realize that the proportion of benefit for Folfox is probably equivalent across all risk strata. But I also look at the absolute effect, and I think if their a priori risk is relatively low, I do question whether we should be adding oxaliplatin. You know, it's interesting. When the exact trial came out, I thought about what happens in breast cancer, whereas often with lower risk, no negative patients, they'll get AC without a taxane, less toxic therapy, similar kind of thinking to what you just described. But our patterns of care studies consistently show that Fulfox is still by far the most common adjuvant therapy for stage 2 disease. Now, this situation is different. We have neuropathy in older men. Dan, how do you put that all together? I think what you're seeing is the effect of when you're treating stage 2 disease, you're selecting out the group of people who you're more likely to worry about, and therefore you're more likely to get Fulfox. So it's much less of a broad acceptance as for stage 3 disease, so it's a more enriched population of worrywarts, if you will, and therefore you're going to give more therapy or none. So, Dan, a 60-year-old, perfectly healthy man, stage 2 disease, 20 lymph nodes removed, absolutely no excess risk factors, will you present the option of adjuvant chemotherapy to that patient? Absolutely, and I'd probably lean toward Folfox based on the unfortunate subset analyses that have been done, both the NSABP and the Mosaic trials, there was never really an intent to delve deep into the stage two versus the stage three subgrouping. But I think intuitively one knows that with Folfox, you probably add three or 4% in terms of five-year survivorship in the average patient. So I will look to get out of oxaliplatin if they're not average. If they have zero of 35 nodes, for example, in the National Cancer Database study, zero of 35 nodes, those patients have an 87% five-year survival with surgery alone. I don't want to be treating them with anything, frankly. If you have zero of two nodes, the five-year survivorship is about 50%. So what it says is that most of those patients are stage three disease. So if they have very few node samples, that patient would be offered Folfox. Norm Walmark actually showed our patterns of care study at the NSABP meeting where we showed that you present a patient with a 10% chance of recurrence with colon cancer to an average U.S.-based oncologist, and they won't give therapy. You present a breast cancer patient with a 10% chance of recurrence, they do get adjuvant therapy. And probably the relative risk reduction is similar. Dan? I think we all acknowledge that there's a disparity. The question is, who's right and who's wrong, if there is such a thing? Are we over-serving breast cancer patients and not doing them a favor by killing them with our kindness, or are we underserving colon cancer patients? I think the answer is somewhere in between, and we were talking on our GI intergroup call the other day about some of the things we need to talk about for trials in general, and one of the things I brought up was, let's stop doing studies coming up with differences we don't care about. 
And the classic example of this is the erlotinib trial in pancreatic carcinoma, where the NCIC did a study in pancreatic cancer. Everyone agreed this would be a positive trial if it met a certain endpoint. It met the endpoint. The FDA approved the drug, and Canada won't approve it, and people don't use it. So we just did a 700-patient study, but it was like a laboratory experiment to show that erlotinib had efficacy. That's all it did, but from a practical standpoint for patients, people are very blasé about it. Well, then let's not do any more studies that use used sample sizes just simply to come up with a positive result. And, you know, it's so hard to try to get inside the mind of the patient and the mind of the doctor. In that study we did last year with 150 patients, they listened to a 50-minute audio interview with John Marshall going through in detail the risks and benefits of therapy in stage 2 and stage 3. And then after listening to this, we said, if you had a loved one in their 60s with average stage 2 disease, would you suggest they get chemo? Given all the biases, of course, 149 out of 150 said yes, and two-thirds would have taken full fox. Atif? Dan, what you said about the 0 out of 35 nodes, 86% survival worried me because I very, very briefly saw a 34-year-old woman, Monday, Chinese, with 0 out of 47 nodes, moderately differentiated lymphovascular invasion with what most probably is going to turn out to be FAB syndrome, zillion of polyps. And she didn't want to go on the CO8, but I actually recommended chemotherapy to her. You think I'm way off? Not way off. I think off a little bit, perhaps. I think that if anybody is not a stage three, it's this lady with 40 nodes sampled, (laughs) even in spite of some lymphovascular invasion. Now, if she had some other feature, like a poorly differentiated tumor, perforation, obstruction always is kind of a wussy one to me because it's in the eye of the beholder. You certainly would never, even in Philadelphia, get to court if you didn't treat this woman. But I think your ultimate benefit is going to be in the very low single-digit range because the risk of relapse, as I said, now be careful because the data from the NCTB is also in part impinged upon because the number of people who have more than 40 or 35 nodes examined is pretty small. So the confidence interval on that 85%. So she's eligible for the trial. If she didn't want to be in the trial, she at least was a candidate for it. If she's young and otherwise healthy, I wouldn't take that 85 to 87 to the bank because, as I said, the confidence interval could go as low as 70, in which case she'd be much more predisposed to doing it. But I think from a feel-good standpoint, you can say, look, the good news is you may not have ever needed this therapy. (laughs) And that's a good thing. Yeah, I agree with Dan. And I think your patient highlights the notion that maybe there is a biologic effect to these positive nodes. I mean, think about finding that a pathologist actually surveying that many nodes. Did they really work that much harder or was it that much easier to find them? And if that's the case, maybe there is a biologic effect. Actually, they worked very hard to find them because she went to Hong Kong to have the surgery where her father (laughs) is a surgeon. Uh oh. (laughs) He didn't operate on her, but he came with her to see me on Monday. Wow. I have a question for Charlie. I don't know the answer to this. I know that one thing most people agree upon is if she had this tumor arise from an HNPCC, is that although those people vote and vote often for tumors, their relapse potential is actually lower. There's a lot more conflict about the benefit of adjuvant therapy. Do you know if that's true in FAP? Are there so many mutations before they develop the cancer? Does that also lead to less likelihood of recurrence? Or are there so few patients with FAP that get it relative to the Lynch? I think we don't know the answer about whether FAP patients have a better outcome. Now, the one caveat is to the notion that HNPCC patients we think do better is there's a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at how you detect patients with HNPCC 
and they added a little addendum to the article looking at the survival of patients with a familial syndrome compared to those without and they claimed that they didn't do better, that the difference was not significant. Although if you looked at the Kaplan-Meier curves, they looked pretty different to me. They just didn't reach statistical significance. But that article's conclusion in the abstract is that that population didn't do better, despite, I think, our fairly consistent notion that HNPCC patients do better. Lowell? Is there any point to looking at these 18Q deletions or microsatellite instability or any of these molecular things on a, a patient that might be a close call? Is any of that ready for prime time yet or... Well, I can speak to the fact that it's being tested, and it's being tested in E5202. And so they are prognostic. I think that's fairly clear, that if you have deletions in 18Q and your microsatellite stable, you're more likely to behave like a stage 3 patient, even if you're anatomically a stage 2. What's not known is whether that should affect your therapy or not. And the study really isn't going to settle that. It really collects data and assorts people, but a proper predictive study would have taken both groups of patients and randomize between one treatment and another in both groups rather than everybody gets treated in this group and nobody in other. I don't get it because I don't know the answer to the predictiveness of it. So I wouldn't go to the added expense. And the other part of it is, although there are multivariable analyses, just like with microarray, there's never been a very good study of all of the anatomic things that we have. So there's no clear evidence, for example, that with these Maybe a really good pathologist just looking at the pathology wouldn't be able to tell you 80% of the prognostic information that you're only adding a tiny little bit on top of that and maybe making it more formulaic and a little bit more mathematical, if you will. Dr. Weinstein? Well, one of the questions that comes up about that is in the microsatellite instability unstable group, hasn't it been shown that in stage 2 disease they don't derive benefit from 5-FU alone therapy or 5-FU In Australia. There were two studies. The Australian trial suggested they did not. The hypothesis was that, in fact, because in the laboratory, these tumors are more likely to be resistant to 5-FU. But there's another study that doesn't show an effect. I think the problem is there are too few patients and they're not prospectively tested. These are all two retrospective reviews. So the answer is I don't treat Lynch patients any different from anyone else, but I do tell them that, again, a good news possibility here is that some believe that your likelihood of recurrence is actually less than the statistics you're reading. And it may also be why people in clinical trials do better. When you think that the median age at entry into any study you can name in any disease is 60.1 years. I mean, read trials. It's amazing that they're consistent in metastatic, adjuvant. It doesn't matter unless it's a very age-related disease. Is that probably adjuvant trials are enriched with Lynch patients because they're younger and more likely to enter trials. Mm -hmm. So I think it's possible that in both ends of the spectrum, if they are not benefiting, you might not see the benefit of treatment, or if they're going to do better anyway, the baseline of the population is going to look better than a community-based 72-year-old with all the comorbidities. So to follow say. up on that, in the, one of the scenarios Neil raised earlier, you have a very good risk stage two patient who you're on the cusp as to whether or not to suggest chemotherapy. And if you had an MSI test that suggested they would not derive benefit from 5-FU leucovorin alone, would that drive you to Folfox? Maybe, maybe. But you know what? I think Dan points is a good one, which is the data that, quote, 5-FU does not work as well in MSI ultimately is a subset of a subset of that study, which amounted to about 27 patients. Mm -hmm. And I think until that's verified or validated in some other data set, I don't think we should conclude that 5-FU is not as effective in MSI-positive tumors. I personally wouldn't let that drive me to think that 5-FU isn't going to work. I want to ask Dr. Gastesi to present his case. 